Church family, one final time, let's behold God's living word by turning to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 9 through 14. And as you turn there, I also want to encourage you to set your heart this week on the book of 1 Peter. Because as we end one race today, we begin another one next week. We're jumping right into the book of 1 Peter, and we will see there what living hope looks like in exile. Uh, we've learned what life under the sun looks like, and now we're going to look at life in exile as the church after the resurrection. And there's going to be so much that we've learned in this series that we can apply to the next. And that is how the word of God works. Thank you, Jesus. The journey of Ecclesiastes has been a hard one. I see all of you with the biggest smiles I've seen since January. But I do want to remind you that we here preach expositionally. That means we go verse by verse. Some of it's been redundant. Some of it has been excruciating. But it's intentional because we believe that every word that comes from the mouth of God that has been given to us through his word is life-giving to us. It's a guard. It's living and active. It's meant for our good. And so we are unapologetically preaching the word of God. And we're going to continue to do so by God's grace. I do hope that you return to Ecclesiastes like an old friend throughout the years. Because that's what it is. It reminds us of the vanity of life. So that we can more profoundly know of the grace of God found in Christ Jesus. So today we come to the end of the matter. The, the final words from the preacher. And though this book has felt at times quite untamed as we have dealt with the vanities of life, it's actually been quite methodical by the preacher. If you remember way back on January 8th when we first went into the prologue, which is verses 1 through 11 in chapter 1, he talked about the cyclical nature of the vanity of life. Everything comes and goes. Creation, humanity. Uh, chapters uh, 1 through 6 really kind of help explore what are we doing here? Uh, what are we looking for? What are we longing for in our hearts? We know eternity has been placed there, but what is it that we're doing here under the sun? Chapters 7 through 11, he's explored the difference between wisdom and folly and how, how we can live a wise life according to God's word, but, but what it looks like to live a life of folly when we depart from God's word. And then in chapter 12, he's brought us to the very end of life and, and what the dying process looks like and where our soul goes after we die. And here in the epilogue, we see that we are to fear God and to keep his commandments. Uh, the main point of the book today or, or, or the passage today, but really is the main point of the book, without Christ, everything is meaningless or said another way, with Christ, everything is meaningful. And that is the point of the book of Ecclesiastes. If you look back in verse 8 of chapter 12 with me, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. He's kind of closing out his argument. He's saying that everything under the sun is futile. It's meaningless. Hevel of hevels, which means meaninglessness upon meaninglessness, as we first argued He's simply explaining, he has just explained, the aging and the dying process and how we will all return to the dust from which we came. 
Man in his nature searches for satisfaction in all the things that are under the sun. This is what we do. This is who we are. But the the preacher's intention of the entire book is to get us to see that man cannot be satisfied under the sun unless he knows God. It is God that he has been driving us to all this time. And the the preacher has brought us into his life and how he's shown us all the ways that he sought for satisfaction and for happiness. And it was found nowhere. All to move us to the point, to the place that life is meaningless unless we know God. And when we know God, then everything is meaningful. That's the final argument. And from this, he drives kind of two points home, and those are going to be our two points for us today. The the first point is found in verses 9 through 12, which kind of begins this epilogue, and it's this. We're going to delight in the words of the shepherd. Besides, verse 9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight. And uprightly, he wrote words of truth. And we see that these words of truth that he's gathered have come by one shepherd. And so we're, we're called here in this first point to delight in the words of this shepherd. Now, the preacher wrote Ecclesiastes to guide the reader with words of profound truth. Here in the epilogue, he's either writing in the third person or a narrator has brought it all together. But he's talking about Solomon's words, or Solomon is referring to his own words. Now, Solomon isn't just studious. He's actually teaching the people, as it says there in verse 9. He's arduously considered and studied and arranged all of these words, all of these proverbs with great care. He's brought these things together intentionally. And he's brought them together as these little sayings in life, these little truths that are to be learned and then applied to the great themes of life. This is what Solomon is doing here, these difficult aspects. He's, he's kind of faced head on the aspects of life in which all of mankind ponders. It really is a labor of love as he has worked to gather these things He's explaining to his son that he's collected these words for the, for the book with prudence and intentionality. And though all of life is vanity, as he has discovered, it happens to be quite profound what he has revealed. So these are words of delight. These are words that are full of integrity. Uh, and he's written these words uprightly, which means he was not crooked when he wrote these words. And these words are true. Now, last week he already instructed us about how we should remember our creator before we become dust. Do you remember remember this exhortation? But here in verse 11 and 12, he shares how we are to remember our creator. Look with me in verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given, here it is, by one shepherd. He says, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. How do you remember the creator? Very simply said, it's by listening to his words. 
The words are given by one shepherd. That little phrase, one shepherd, is an important phrase. It's actually a messianic phrase. Uh, We see in Ezekiel chapter 34 that there's going to be one shepherd who guides his people Israel. Uh, We see in Ezekiel 37 that there's one shepherd, my servant David, who will guard the people forever. In John 10, we see that there's a shepherd that comes, and those that hear his voice will never die again but have eternal life. And no one, not Satan himself, can pluck uh, them from his hand. And this shepherd is Jesus Christ. Uh, We see this good shepherd uh, in the New Testament. He is the chief shepherd that the apostle Peter says will return for his church and be their shepherd forever in 1 Peter chapter 5. So so when we see one shepherd here, we're not talking about Solomon as the shepherd of Israel. We're talking about the one true God who is shepherding his people. That means this book is claiming to be the inspired word of God. It might be Solomon that has gathered the words together, but it is God who has given the words. So this book is inspired by the words of our shepherd. And despite us people not listening to the shepherd's voice, despite trying to find delight in all the things of the world, the good shepherd is still giving us his word to consider. God still provides his word to be our delight. Oh, I pray that it's your delight. Man thought that the fruit in the garden was delightful to the eye. And what he learned is that the word of God is actually the delightful thing that keeps you, that nourishes you, that feeds you, that gives you life. I I, I pray that we see the word of God as such a gift, such fruit for us to feast on and to be nourished by. Now consider the effects of God's delightful word. Look with me again in verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Now, I want us to consider the imagery he's using here. It's quite beautiful. Uh, Goads were shepherd's tools. They were long rods with sharp little instruments at the end of them to, to help the sheep not get off the path. So if they drifted to the left, uh, the goad would poke them and, and, and get them back on the right path. If they, prod, if they went to the right, the goad would prod them to get back on the right path. Uh, the word of God is a goad. It, it pokes us and, and it prods us and it helps us to know what it, the right path is and, and what the shepherd has, has taught us and has revealed about himself. And then he says, the word of God are nails firmly fixed. Nails hold boards in place. He's saying, listening to good teaching holds your life in place. Listening to the words of the shepherd keeps you fixed. He wants his teaching to be nailed down into the, to the reader's mind, into the, to the people of God's mind. Now, we know that sh- uh, nails can be sharp. Goads can be sharp. Uh, listening to things about death and aging and vexation can be sharp. But it's meant to be for our good. The word of God can pierce our hearts at times. But that it, it's intended to do that. 
to poke and prod us, no matter how painful uh, it can be sometimes listening to the word of God, it's always meant to help us walk down the path of wisdom after the voice of the shepherd. And so he not only gathers God's word, though, but look how he gives God's word. It's, a, it's an appeal in verse 12. In fact, I would say it's a, it's a warning. And I would say let's listen to the preacher's warning just as if we were his own son. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. Of much study is a weariness of the flesh. So he turns from the attention of the people in verse 9 where he's teaching all the people. And now here he focuses on his own son. He's saying everybody has opinions. Everybody has books that are written. Uh, There's libraries compiled everywhere all over this world. If you were to ask me what one of my favorite things in life are, it's a big library, a rainy day, and a cup of coffee. Okay? But he's saying here, those things aren't necessarily bad, but he wants to remind him that the words of the shepherd are different. They're life-giving. They are meant to lead you to a place of faithfulness and goodness. He's appealing to his son to listen to the words of the shepherd, which he has compiled all the days of his life. Think about that. He, he He wants his own son to not go searching for things on his own. But he wants his son to listen to everything that he has done, the hard work of compiling and experiencing and saying, son, I've looked everywhere and this is where it's found. Listen to the words of the shepherd. He knows by experience that all these things that he's done will not pan out in the end. But he has found the words of the shepherd to be delightful and perfect and Good. It, it's like if you've ever gone to the refrigerator and you've accidentally drank spoiled milk. You don't pass it on to your family members. You throw it out. He's saying, I've tried it. It's not good for you. It's not good for you. Only the, the shepherd's words are good for you. Only God can satisfy you. Beloved, do you consider the shepherd's words delightful? Do you consider the shepherd's words delightful? Do you you ruminate on the meaning of the words that are given in the scriptures? Or do you just read them and pass over them? I would encourage us to sit in the meaning of words. To, to, To enjoy them like a jolly rancher. You just one one suck at a time, and you're just enjoying the taste of a job. The word of God is the same. Sit in the word of God. Enjoy the word of God. What is the word of God saying to you? What is it speaking into the deep places of your heart? Uh, Maybe write down uh, this week, what is one thing from the word of God that has changed you in the past year? One thing that you, you saw in the word of God that just opened up your mind to see God in a whole nother way. Write, write it down. Tell your friends and your family about it. If you don't look for wisdom in the word of God, where do you seek wisdom from? 
What person do you think in this world has good ideas or shapes your opinion? Uh, is it the news? Is it a friend? Is it experience? My encouragement to you today is to run to the shepherd's lips, his words, for there is delight in them. Do you want to hear the word of God? Are you willing to be poked and prodded by the word of God as you read it? Are you willing to let it hurt you a little bit because it reveals some sin that you're struggling with? Some idolatry, uh, some things that you're holding on to too tightly. Trust the shepherd's voice. Have courage. Express faith as you read the word of God. We have a responsibility to disciple with these shepherd's words. How are you seeking spiritual good in the life of your brother and sister as it relates to this church? A healthy church uh, will have members who use the word of God to poke and prod because they love one another. They're not just leaving all the ministry to the ministers, but, but the ministers are to equip the saints for the work of ministry and allowing the word of God into the conversations of life so that we can be shaped and formed by it. Colossians 3.16, teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. We go back to that verse often. We teach, we listen, we engage. So think about how, how are you allowing the word of God to change your own heart and how are you using it in the life of other people? Now, the goal of this delightful wisdom for the shepherd is to fear God. And that's where we get our second point here today. Fear God and keep his commands. Verse 13, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment. With every secret thing, whether good or evil. Why should, you, why should we delight in God's word? And why would we be willing to allow it to wound us even? Because the whole matter of the book is to fear God and to keep his words. That's the whole duty of man. The, the reason you exist is found right here in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. It can be summed up in one verse. It's the tip of the sword of his findings. All the vexation, all the temporary joy, all of the sorrow and the tears and the death and the injustices that Solomon has gone through in this life. What all of it meant, it led to the very tip of the sword, the very tip of the sword. What I have learned is that the point of life is to fear God and to keep his commandments. That's to know God. And to walk with him, to be kept by his word. Uh, to be kept by his word and to keep his commands means to, be, to remain near to what God says. To be guarded by what it says. Anytime we flutter away into our own thoughts, we're in danger. We're to hide the word of God in our hearts like it says in Psalm 119. So that we might not sin against God. So we, we bury it. We, we're in fellowship with the word because in the word... We learn who God is. Ezekiel 36, 26 says that the Lord through his word is our protector. He guards us. He guides us. The word guides us like a lamp on the path. 
of life. The preacher is saying, don't search your own wisdom, but fear God and keep his commandments because there is a pending judgment that is coming. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We've talked about this, Proverbs 9, verse 10. It's the same thing as remembering your creator. The fear of God is remembering him. It means considering him, regarding him. Worshiping him, obeying him, loving him throughout all of your life. Not just Sunday, not just Wednesday night, but for everything. We cannot walk straight the path unless the word of God is guarding our steps. And, and the fear of Lord, remember we, we talked about this just as a, as a quick reminder. It's not being afraid of God. This is attractional fear. This is him drawing near to us and us wanting to draw near to him. This is wanting to be near God because we recognize that in him is eternal life. To fear God means to recognize him for his glory and his judgments. Recognizing that his truth transcends all cultures in all time. That his sovereignty holds all things together and his holiness is brighter than the sun. This is, this is not just intellectually agreeing with this. This is submitting to this truth and saying, I recognize that there's nothing in my life that can be done apart from walking in sweet, fearful fellowship with the creator of the cosmos. And this ought to keep us on our knees. Asking the Lord repeatedly to be on our minds, our hearts, through his spirit. We cannot in the flesh keep the commands of God. But we see in the New Testament that those who believe in Christ have been given the spirit, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And the spirit then lives within us. And what does the spirit do? According to Romans 8, 4, the spirit then begins to to fulfill the law as it shapes us and, and, and molds us into the image of Christ. This is the sweet blessing of being in fellowship with God, fearing him, loving him, walking with him. When you know God, you don't want to trespass his law. And when you do, and we will, we confess these things and we turn back to Christ and we remember the grace of God all over again. So this keeps us going back to him constantly. Solomon tried all these things in the world. He found no delight except for the character of God. Let's trust his word in this. I, I love Charles Bridges. Uh, another, he, happens, he happens to not be here. He's dead. He is an old pastor, a faithful one. The fear of God is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. It's his delight. My, I, it's like David in Psalm 1, he's just delighting in the law of the Lord. And he wants to keep it because he is so face-to-face -face with the living God. I think Ecclesiastes has also taught us that we cannot fulfill the law by ourselves. That we're unable to do this. No, no better than Solomon could fulfill the law. Solomon abandoned the instruction to Israel's kings. Remember this from Deuteronomy 17? It, do not marry foreign women, do not trade with Egypt. And it's like Solomon was like, 
I'm going to do all of those things. He just neglected Deuteronomy 17. He did not keep God's word in his heart. And I think sometimes we think just because we didn't have, we don't have 700 spouses, 300 concubines, that we are somehow less evil than Solomon. But we're not. We've had 7,000 lustful thoughts, 7,000 faithless prayers, 7,000 moments of anxiety. The preacher, the congregant cannot fulfill the law of God. And so we rest on the character and the mercy and the grace of God. It's important for us to recognize these things. Why? Because of verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing. You guys, you see that? Secret thing. Whether good or evil, you cannot, why I cannot escape any part of the judgment of God. Our secrets will be brought forth. Everything you have done, everything that someone has done against you, this book has talked about injustices, uh, those will be judged. Everything that you have done against someone else, every sin that you have trespassed against the holy God of the cosmos will be laid bare before him and be judged. The sorrow for all the injustice that was expressed, remember back in chapter 4, verse 1, who will comfort them? It will be handled. All actions, thoughts, injustices. Are you prepared for that day? Are you prepared for that day when everything comes to light? Because this book serves as a wake-up call to all of humanity that we search for satisfaction under the sun and we will not find it. And we use our own instincts to try to fulfill certain satisfactions and in so doing, we end up sinning against our brother and trespassing the holy law of God. Everything will be judged. Now, here's the good news. It's either judged at the cross of Christ for those who have put their faith in him, or it will be judged on the day when Christ comes back. Those are the two times that sin is judged. But every injustice, every sin, everything will be judged. The point of Ecclesiastes and Brothers and sisters, the, the point of all 65 books, or uh, the 65 other books of the canon of Scripture, is to make you wise for salvation. This is what Paul tells to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. He says, remember the sacred writings, including the book of Ecclesiastes, that is uh, able to make you wise for salvation. For those who have turned away from their sin and who have turned to Christ, there is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. The judgment has been taken care of at the cross. Uh, brothers and sisters, that is the best news for you every second of every day of your life. You, you get to just sit in the fact that before God's throne, Jesus says, I represent him. I represent her. They're mine. 
you gave them to me before the foundation of the earth. And judgment has been accomplished. The Old Testament actually helps us understand this a little bit. On the day of atonement, the high priest laid his hands on the goats and confessed the sin of Israel. And then the Israel would be put, uh, excuse me, then the goat would be led out, taken outside the camp. And the sin would, would go with the goat, taken outside uh, the camp. Sins forgiven for Israel. Guilt transferred and taken away outside the city. That's exactly what the Lamb of God came to do. Our sin was placed on Christ. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, as it says in 1 Peter 2, 24, which we're about to get into. And Jesus was crucified. And you know where he was cru crucified? He was crucified outside the camp, as it says in Hebrews 13. Our sin was taken away. Praise him. And though our sin steals for us all, all types of things, uh, it, it, it robs us it, uh, of joy. It uh, persuades us into thinking the things of this world are, are delightful without knowing God, and they're not. Uh, sin robs us of, uh, of our hearing, of our eyesight, of our bodily functions. It's sin that ultimately leads us back into the dust. But our spirit goes to God. Because he planted eternity in our hearts, as chapter 3, verse 11 reminded us. And we will be with him forever. So because of Christ, you can know God. You can keep his word. You can obey him. You can fear him. You can know him. You can serve him. Because he has loved you. He served you. He has kept you. And then we can even begin to live lives that replicate this kind of love. Uh, love uh, fulfills the law when we consider our neighbor. That's what it says in Romans 13 and Galatians 5. And Christ at the center of the cross teaches us this truth. He not only atoned for our sins, but he also raised us to walk a new life because he conquered death. Have you noticed that all of us go back into the dust, but Jesus did not go into the dust Jesus conquered the grave, and he's alive forevermore. And whoever believes in him, though he perish, will not truly die. And that is our hope in the gospel. So my encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, if you don't know Christ, open the book of judgment on your life before you stand before the one who judges. Recognize that you're a sinner, and you cannot find satisfaction, nor can you fulfill the law on your own. Now, in our closing minutes, I just want us to think through just a couple of things that we've learned from the book of Ecclesiastes. And we've learned a lot, and we're not going to be able to uh, cover all of them. These are just a few things that I've learned, that I needed in my own heart, needed to be reminded of. Number one, life is really messy. This book has invited us into the hard questions of life and death. The, the, the questions of life that we don't normally talk about. This book has just opened up our minds and our hearts to talk about these things. I think we'll all agree together that life doesn't make a whole lot of sense all the time. Why certain tragedies happened. 
Uh, I'm mourning today. I'm from Allen, Texas, and just the tragedies that happened yesterday in Allen. I mean, we just look and we, we try to make sense of things, but we really can't. There's no formula for certainty in this life. We even try to predict the weather, but it doesn't happen. We share the same fate as the animals, like chapter 3 taught us, that we're going to go back into the dust. But we've also learned that God is certain. The one over the sun is the one that holds all things together under the sun. What a comfort to our hearts. But I would encourage you at your lunch to open up. Uh, open up today. Talk about things that you probably wouldn't normally talk about. And this is good for us to kind of pry open the soul a little bit to do just that. Number two, we've learned that we are dust and that God is eternal. Beloved, I've never seen a book more timely needed for a body such as ours as the book of Ecclesiastes has been. Uh, the week before we started the book of Ecclesiastes to today, we have lost nine saints. Uh, listen to their names. John Pike, Bob Dotson, Marie Andrews, Ken Lowe, Jack Hickey, Lynn Miller, Samantha Golightly, Gary Johnson, and Glenn Mash. <clears throat> there is nothing new under the sun. Generations come and generations go. We're like sandcastles, beautiful for a moment. Tide comes and washes us away. But God remains the same. God will set all things right. When we die, our spirit will go to him. There is so much certainty. We don't have to put our faith in dust. We get to put our faith in the one who overcame the dust. Number three, life is a gift from God, so enjoy it. We've kind of learned that there's no net gains. But all these things he's given us in life, work, food, drink, fellowship are there to be enjoyed. So enjoy them, beloved, to the very fullest. I happen to think we have the sweetest fellowship in the country. I am so grateful for the spirit of God and the way that he's begun working and moving continuously for 119 years in this congregation. Let's enjoy the life that God has given us together. Always, in, always pointing each other back to our creator. Enjoy it. And let's not use life and the things of it as net gains because we've learned that there's no gain. There's no gain apart from gaining God. Number four, we are distracted with things that don't last. Am I right? Like my baseball career, that didn't last very long. <laughs> Pleasure is always fleeting. Don't substitute or exchange faithfulness for a few moments of fleeting pleasure. Don't be distracted by the things that won't last. Paul says, set your, set your eyes on the things that are unseen, the things that will last. Number five, the blessing of companionship. We don't have to live alone. We don't have to be envious of one another. 
Beloved, invest in these relationships. Invest in relationships that you have, deep friendships. Invest in the people of this community that you don't know. Invest in the people that don't know God. Chapter 4 taught us the blessing of companionship and the dangers of isolation. Number 6, there is a wrong way to worship. Brothers and sisters, let's guard our steps before we enter the household of God. Let's guard our minds. Don't walk in not thinking about what it is that we are called to do and the God that we serve. And that is only possible when we are knitting ourselves to the word of God. Remember these things. Number seven, God's design is better than ours. We don't like to submit to authority. We don't like to think about death. We like to be anxious about all the things we can't control. And God's like, you don't have to be anxious anymore. Uh, uh, it's good to submit to authority. It's going to help you to flourish. Maybe not in this life with stuff, but in being faithful before me. You don't have to be anxious about death. My son overcame it. Number eight, fear God. Fear God by remembering your creator. Death kind of decreates us, as we talked about last week. But remembering God, we know that he's going to make all things new. Uh, all the things that were stripped away in the garden, he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth, a better garden with one tree, and it's only the tree of life. Number nine, and this is the last one that I came up with. Lasting meaning comes through a relationship with God. This is where we get to be Godward focused and not earthly focused. This is where we get to be heavenly minded so that we can be faithfully earthly good and enjoy the things that God has given to us. And this only comes through a relationship with Christ Jesus our Lord. If you don't know Christ, he's there to be known. Uh, when we preach the word, we expose who he is, that you may know the giver of life. And for the Christian, I remind you, we preach the gospel over and over again because we're constantly looking for satisfaction under the sun. And the scriptures and the gospel reset our mind to above the sun. And we're going to live one day above the sun, and there will be no death there. There will be no sin in that city, as we just sang. This one shepherd provided reconciliation back to God, and therefore everything in life is meaningful. Uh, a judgment is important uh, because everything proves to be meaningful. And with Christ, everything is meaningful. That's when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Be steadfast, beloved. Be immovable, beloved. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we come before you so thankful for the meaningful book of Ecclesiastes that points us to the one shepherd. Oh, that we would fear him and obey his commands. Father, knowing that we cannot fulfill the commands ourselves, but knowing that one came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In whose name we pray.
Amen.